Now, if you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel to chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Last week, we left off at the beginning of a battle. Remember, you have what starts out as a competition between an equal number of a few men on each side, hoping to settle that without a big amount of bloodshed, but it comes to a draw, and it breaks out into a full-scale battle, and then one fellow in particular runs out ahead, Asahel, and he's struck down. And our text picks up in the middle of that battle. It is not over yet. Up to this point, Judah, the southern tribe associated with King David and led by Joab, Judah is enjoying a certain amount of dominance in this. They seem to be on the up, but of course in the middle of the battle you don't know for sure how many people have been lost. But they've got Abner on the run. And that brings us up to our text here at everything that follows at verse 24. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Giah on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Says the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for having preserved for us a true account of what your people have experienced, both of the happy moments and also of times of great peril and sorrow, we ask that your Holy Spirit tonight would instruct us, give us understanding, give us wisdom for life grounded upon the gospel in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, not simply of a man, but since it is among the inspired books of the Bible, there we find a portion of the Lord's wisdom for our lives. It's a challenging book because it's wisdom for when things seem to go sideways, largely. You have Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs, as a rule, describes the generality of things going 
You know, if you live this way, this is what will happen. But it's a bit like I before E except after C. You learn a certain grammar that usually obtains concerning wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Then you come to the book of Ecclesiastes and you discover, oh, there are exceptional instances in a fallen world. And you can be studious, you can be devoted, you can be all kinds of good things and yet suffer hardship. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, verse 1, this is what we read. There is a season for everything and a time for every matter under heaven. A season for everything, every matter under heaven. And the writer goes even further and says words that I know are hard to stomach for many. He says in verses 3 and 8, there is a season, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There are certainly those, including among Christians, who hold the view that there is never a time for war or violence, at least not in a literal, physical sense. I think it should be plain, however, from the whole tenor of Scripture and the many righteous people whom God himself engaged to fight, that there are times and seasons when it is necessary to put up a fight, even in an earthly sense. That can be difficult for us to consider, but then again, if there was not a time to use physical violence to engage in earthly warfare, God would not have prescribed his people particular terms and conditions. Deuteronomy chapter 20, for instance, specifies exactly who was to be involved, how long they were to be involved. For instance, maybe you're aware of this, it's stated in the law that if a man got married, he was not allowed to go to battle for the first year after he was married. It says for the sake of his young wife. And so there's humanity mixed right alongside of the necessity at times of force. Likewise, in the Gospels, at the very outset, we meet John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is encountered by some Roman soldiers, and they say, what must we do to please the Lord? And he tells them, not lay down your arms, He tells them, do no injustice. He doesn't tell them, stop being soldiers. He says, use your calling in a just way. Romans chapter 13 says, ministers of God, quote, do not hold the sword in vain. And there it's referring to those who minister in a civil capacity. And so there is a time and a season for warfare, both of the natural and the spiritual sort. The question then, here's the question. It's not whether or not there's a time to fight, but to what extent we wield aggression. To what extent do we wield it, and then at what point do we restrain it? That's true in natural circumstances, and we have to ask the question of whether it has a parallel in spiritual circumstances. And so this evening, the Holy Spirit draws us through this passage, through this experience of God's people, to ask that question. What are the principles that govern our engagement and our aggression, our violence. This will trickle down into the small scale. I realize few of us have, with any kind of regularity, been involved in the kind of violence that consumes those in the military, sometimes those who are police officers. Most of us are not involved in that. And yet, even in our day-to-day life, there are times where we have to take a stand and even be aggressive in certain ways to make the right thing come to pass. 
And so we're going to look at this passage under three main headings. I'll announce them each as we come to them, or rather two main headings. But first, try to appreciate the circumstance a little bit more. It's so easy with a story like this to read through it quickly, but to miss some of the details that fill it out as a real event. And with great point, the Holy Spirit is inspired to even have names of places in it, all of that to establish, this is real, this is not mythology. The details matter for it. Consider the circumstance that Joab is facing. He's one of the generals. We don't know exactly how many are on each side, but the fact that 360 of Abner's men have died tells us these are fairly large groups, fairly large groups involved. And it tells us in verses 24 and 25 that darkness was falling at this time. Picture that. This is long before they have anything like night vision to assist them in combat. No street lights, maybe some moonlight. Imagine being involved in close combat long before we have anything that we're accustomed to with rifles. They have some slings, some have bows, not many, probably. Imagine fighting at night, and Abner's men occupy the high point on the hill. It says that they group as one man. They have made a solid point on the top of that hill. And then Abner, in verse 26, the general on the other side, he calls out to Joab. That's how close they are. They are within shouting distance. And Abner says, essentially, you should stop now. We should call this off. We should be done for now. That is a hard position for a general to be in, for Joab to be in. Should he push his victory? He's winning. He's got them on the run. He's got them trapped on a hilltop. Should he push this or should he not? Anyone familiar somewhat with American history might know that one of the challenges during the Civil War that President Lincoln was up against was he felt that he could not get the northern generals to press their victories. And that's what he was so upset with about McClelland. He couldn't get McClelland, if he got a victory, to actually press it, to take it further. He had the enemy on the run, and he'd stop and say, oh, all right, they're going. He couldn't get them to, to really push down. And the question is whether or not Joab ought to have done that. He is a leader charged with authority from the chosen king, Will he push the victory? As a first main heading, we need to consider this together. I think in this passage, we're forced to consider that there are seasons when it is appropriate to restrain our aggression. And I'll tell you from the outset, I am not certain whether or not Joab made the right call. And yet we see him being forced to wrestle with that. And so we, as the people of God, have to wrestle with Scripture and ask the question, should he have? And by parallel in our own circumstances, do we believe? This is, even if you're not on the front line in a war, even if you're not making the call, we as citizens of a nation do have a say. And we do speak on whether we think more aggression is needed or not. On the local level, with police, on the grand level, with the military... You see, Abner appeals first to the bitterness of bloodshed as a reason to stop this. Look at verse 26 with me. Verse 26, then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? I think it's worth pausing and appreciating. 
That's not how Abner was talking when he thought he was going to win. If you weren't here last week, Abner started this. And that is how it sometimes goes on the individual level and on the national level. A country thinks, oh, this is going to be easy. We're going to take them out. And there's an arrogance to it. And then once they're in the mix, they say, this is bitter, as it always is. In war, everyone loses. Some just lose more than others. And here he appeals to the bitterness. He says, do you not know that the end will be bitter? And he wants Joab to consider that. Why would Joab think that this is going to be bitter? Joab's winning. And if he does get up there and he slaughters all of them, who knows how many's left? 100, 200, 400? We don't know. Let's say that Joab wins. Why would it be bitter? Obviously, he found this persuasive. Well, it may be several things. Again, I mentioned that it's nighttime, it's uphill, and Abner's group holds the top. In all likelihood, humanly speaking, there will be disproportionate losses for Joab. He may lose five men for every one man he kills. And even if he takes them, he has to weigh in the balance here, is it worth the expenditure of life on this occasion? Should all of the troops on either side have to suffer for the arrogance of Abner? That's a hard call. Again, I don't profess to know exactly what is right. Also, the fact that they are of the same people is a significant factor. Verse 26. How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? This is a civil war. And when you kill that man, you are killing the husband of a wife, the father of children. And these are your own people. And this is a consideration we have to take in the world. When we are, especially in youth, eager to be involved in a fight of any kind, you ask, who else is this affecting? And especially if these are professing Christians and the bitterness of conflict in that. Our country has been through this to an enormous scale. The thought that however mistaken either side thinks the other is, yet these are professing believers. No one wants to be the agent of sending someone else out of the mission field into glory. That's not ideal. And Joab is having to weigh this. In some ways, Joab's restraint then reflects a very becoming moderation. And I do think that we can gain principles of wisdom as we think about it. What would he have to gain, not just in terms of preserving the life of his men, but for the sake of his people, what would he have to gain if he doesn't charge up the hill? No one can charge Joab, by the way, with not being courageous. The man's whole career is one of nonstop courage. The guy's fearless, utterly fearless. So this is not about getting out of battle. But he has to think, David wants reconciliation. David has been doing everything to avoid a fight, hoping that the northern tribes would come to their senses and recognize who the true king is. And by showing leniency here, by not pressing the battle any further, he's already got a huge victory. Perhaps he's hoping that this might draw the northern kingdoms down. Moderation as a rule, as a principle. And so there are seasons, I believe, that we have to consider and we have to ask for God's wisdom whether or not it's appropriate to curb our aggression. On the other hand, Joab's choice arguably prolonged the war. It arguably made the war go longer. Look with me at verse 29. 
Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. This is remarkable because probably, remember, they're up at, at the hill there. We can imagine that there were some guards staked to find out or maybe to try to keep them trapped at the top. But here, Abner leads this nocturnal escape, a retreat, leads them all night and day to get them as far as they can away. And because he escapes the general who appointed the false king Ishbosheth, because he gets away, arguably the war will go on for many more years, as it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Then there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Joab was that close. He could have gotten him. And he didn't. Did he make a mistake? Again, I don't profess that I have certainty about what should have been the right answer, and that's part of the nature of our earthly conflict. This is not an unspiritual sermon because I'm focusing on the realities of war and things like that. That's extremely spiritual. You have the Holy Spirit and you live in the real world and you can't get out of these things. Some of our own children at some point are going to be faced with this in all statistical likelihood. Some of your children... And are you going to press for war because you're just angry at things going on? Or are you going to think, what is the wise thing to do? We need wisdom. And God's people are sown throughout different countries as a kind of leavening to try to preserve against corruption and preserve sanity. But it is the nature of earthly conflict that we often don't know for certain what is right. And in that situation, the best you can do is try to appeal to the Lord with humility, give me your wisdom, consult the word, and then make a choice and live with the consequences, knowing that Christ has covered you with his blood. And any of you who are called to hard decisions, and I say that knowing we have police officers here, knowing that we have others who have served in the prison system, others who serve in the military, regret is part of it. And that will be healed in the end. What we have to do is seek to have a good conscience before the Lord. And the main warnings I believe we can draw from this instance, in the first place, beware arrogance and bloodthirstiness that draws us into these conflicts. Abner wanted some glory and he thought he could get it then and there. And there's the danger, on the other hand, of Joab wanting vengeance vengeance for the sake of his brother and I think it's truly commendable in this instance because if you know anything about the story Joab is not going to forget this spoiler Joab is going to kill Abner himself with his own hands at a time of peace that's a problem but in this moment clearly as a general and as a leader he's able to look beyond his private vendetta his personal anger and ask how is my anger affecting everyone else Should everyone have to suffer because I am angry? And that's a remarkable character quality of leadership, especially in the home. Is it not the case sometimes that parents have a hard time knowing where to draw the line? How much wrath? How much judgment? Where do we draw the line with restraint? And here, while not knowing exactly where in your situation to draw the line, I would say that we have to humbly appeal to the Lord, let this not be about me. Let this be about the welfare of everyone involved. Verse 28, Joab blew the trumpet and the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Likewise, we see a willingness on the part of those who were charged with obedience to follow suit 
with those leaders, and that too is to be commended. What then do we do? I think we should place all of this in perspective of God's self-restraint. Proverbs chapter 6 describes certain things the Lord hates. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. If you consider that list carefully, you may find that arguably five of the seven things that God hates become involved whenever there is unrestrained aggression. When somebody gives themselves over to wrath without end, haughty eyes, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, one who sows discord among the brothers. By contrast, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. A peacemaker is not the same thing as a pacifist. A peacemaker seeks peace and pursues it, desires it, yearns for it. And yet there is the reality of the fact that sometimes nothing else will do. I state that as my conviction. I am fully convinced it is the conviction of Scripture as well. What about, however, the spiritual warfare? Over the last few weeks, we've seen opportunities to parallel what's going on in Israel's history with certain spiritual principles that do apply to our very different kingdom work. There's a sense in which, remember, our weapons are not of this world. When we think about seeing people come to faith, seeing sin brought into submission. And this is the second and final main heading that we consider together. The Bible likens the Christian life to spiritual warfare, or to military warfare, and we should anticipate that there is a, there is a kind, there's a reason for the parallel. Jesus is a good teacher. One of the marks of a truly good teacher is that they come up with great analogies. And when the Bible describes our spiritual life in terms of martial imagery, warfare, you should not then be surprised when there is struggle involved, toil, a feeling of peril and danger. All of these things are involved when there are enemies against us. Now, of course, the weapons of our war are different. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord tells the prophet Jeremiah, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah had a calling to tear down kingdoms, and so he didn't walk into his shed and get a bazooka and go out. What does he, but he had something better. He has the word. He's going to demolish single-handedly kingdoms, powers, with the scripture. And the Lord doesn't think that that's weak. And yet I can bet you if Jeremiah knew what a bazooka was at that time, he might have been tempted to think that's how to win the war for Israel. As we are at times too. Don't confuse these two parallel callings that we have to maintain order in the world, but at the same time to see others brought to faith. It's a different tool set. They overlap. There's a Venn diagram here. But it is spiritual things that convert the spirit of man. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, Though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world, but they have divine power to demolish strongholds.
In this context, we have to ask the question, is there ever a time when we can do what Joab did? Can we blow the trumpet and say, enough, enough war. It will be very bitter if we go any further. Sometimes pastors do that in the things that they choose to preach about. And sometimes elders do that in the things that they confront people about. They are satisfied with the degree of victory that has already taken place, but any further, and there is a fear that, won't that make life bitter if we really pursue all sin? All of it? Sometimes fathers do that, and the things that they turn a blind eye to in the home, and mothers as well. Sometimes we do that, because you have your own battlefield in yourself. And we become satisfied with a degree of victory, and we don't want to press things any further, because that will make perhaps a sense of tension among the brothers because we worry that they'll think that, we have, that we're judgmental or weird. What a tragic thing in the church when to pursue holiness to the nth is weird. Now there is something else where you go beyond scripture and do things that the scripture has not commanded you and you lord it over others and of course that should be rejected. But the very things that the scripture talks about, for instance, where it says, let no filthy speech come out of your mouth. And we can rejoice that the Lord has given us substantial victory. Maybe you used to swear like a sailor and you took the Lord's name in vain. You don't do those things anymore and that's a great victory. But the scripture says, let no filthy things come out of your mouth. And then by extension, do we still laugh at what is filthy? And maybe we used to be fornicators or adulterers, and there's a great victory there. But are we really going to deny ourselves any mental fabrications of that which is impure? I mean, that's a bitter life. But I've heard people say that to me, and at times I've had that same thought. Like, oh, but just a little sin, Lord. These are my brothers. No, they're not. They're your enemies. All sin is your enemy. It is sworn to kill you. And like Abner, it will Go off in the night, skulk away, and set up a stronghold somewhere else. In the words of John Owen, one of the great English theologians, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you make peace with a single sin, you are creating the foothold for rebellion in your heart. Because that's what's at the root of all of it. Romans 8 verse 13 Brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And by that we see that, again, this is not in the context of Romans. Anyone who's read Romans, Paul's not saying you're saved by putting sin to death, that that's the basis of your justification. No. But he is saying it's the evidence of true spiritual life. And he is saying that a life that doesn't put sin to death is no life at all. If by the Spirit you put sin to death, you will live. Ask any mature believer, the most joy that we have comes in those times when we are living with a clean conscience, rejoicing before the Lord. Ask them when you are miserable, when you feel like life is death, and it's the times when we have grown familiar with sin. Because it's the antithesis of the presence of God to live that way. Recently, I think I mentioned several sermons ago, I started reading the memoirs of President Grant, General Grant. It's 
too long. It's taken me a long time to read it. And this very week, I came up to a passage, famous, I had heard about it before, maybe you've heard about it. But one of the turning points in his career, before he was the great Grant, before he, he had a position, he was a general, but he wasn't so well known. He comes to Fort Donelson, and he's able to surround it. And that itself was a significant victory. And the general inside was General Buckner. General Buckner had been one of his friends. And Buckner had gone to West Point with Grant. Picture the circumstances here. Grant is, you know, he has the question of pressing his victory, and he's got this man in there with the army. And then on top of that, Buckner had even loaned Grant money when he was at his poorest. Buckner sent Grant a message asking for a negotiated armistice. Will you let us just kind of go out? Can we get out of here? And we get it. You won. You can have the points. You win. And that's the kind of thing McClellan had a reputation for. Grant's response on February 16th is famous. Sir, your message of this date proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation just received No terms except unconditional immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. That was the kind of attitude which is credited with the advance of the army from that point. If that's what he would say, I am sure that Christ would say something even more firm. Unconditional, immediate surrender The finger points at me. But just because the finger's pointing at me doesn't mean that I can lie. Every one of us has to ask the question, where, Lord, before you, before your eyes which see all, where, O Lord, is there any sin in me? And like David, once we've found the sins that we recognize, then we have to say, if there be any secret sin, anything hidden down deep, anything that displeases you. And we should not look at that as the wrecking of our life, like the Lord is walking through our house and taking all the things that we thought were precious and throwing them away. Sin in the flesh makes you feel that way, that your life will be degraded by being done with things that displease him. It's completely the opposite. He's walking through in a hazmat suit, taking out filth that is going to pollute and kill you. And it's for your good to say, we aren't done fighting this until we have left this life. We will march all night if necessary. I want to encourage you in one way before we close in prayer. Look with me at verse 30. Verse 30, it says, Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men beside Asahel. Now, remember, 12 of them died in the hand-to-hand combat at the beginning. So we're talking six lost in the battle. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. That degree of initial victory, no doubt, gave them great courage. And that is how the military tends to work. It lives on the fumes. It thrives on the smell of its own victory. Where it's had a victory, it says, I can have more. And it likes the taste and it wants it. How much more in Jesus Christ... How many of all whom the Father has given him will he lose? Zero. 
Now, I realize it's very discouraging when some who have professed Christ fall away, and the scripture tells us, and we have to hold it in perspective. First John tells us, they went out from us that it might become manifest that they were never of us. For had they been of us, they most assuredly would have continued with us. And the Lord uses such instances to cause us to question and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to do. Not work out your salvation by doing it yourself, but reconciling yourself to the reality of the need for grace, throwing yourself upon it. But Christ will lose none of his. And then on top of that, think of the initial victories that he's given. Maybe you can recall this even in your own life. Is it not the case that very often the Lord, in calling someone to himself, grants substantial, sometimes astounding victories, a change of life? A person who is known for one lifestyle comes to faith and they go to another. And the knowledge, whether or not that has been your experience, because again, there are those who, by God's grace, and this is the ideal, have never known the prodigal experience. That is nothing to be ashamed of. That's what it should be. But when we consider the church as a whole, we should be grateful to the Lord and take heart from that. If Christ produces this in his church, why am I so in bondage to the deceit that this one sin that seems so big to me is some obstacle for Jesus Christ. And the enemy wants you to think that. He wants you to think you're in the tomb and the stone is never going to roll away. He wants you to think that every day. Every day start it with, I can't possibly win this battle. It's getting dark. I shouldn't engage. Go up the hill until you have won. Or until you have died and then you've won. There's no option to stay down when we see the power of Christ all around us. Verse 32, Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. May it be so with you. March. Soon enough, we will see the light. We will see the dawn. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory promised to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we will not always wrestle with sin. We thank you that you have pleased yourself to watch us as we wage war and to take pleasure in seeing us demonstrate loyalty to you. We thank you that you delight to see your servants carry out your orders. And we thank you that you have appointed us not to be just grunts, but you you place us right next to your son in glory. We pray that you would help us to take seriously your hatred of that which is evil. You tell us in the word there is a time to hate, and the time to hate sin is now. Please help us, Father. Forgive us for our indifference. It runs so deep. Without your transformation, we won't change. But with your power, there is substantial victory. We pray that you would give us a taste of it. Encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen.